This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, we once again have a ton of titles to talk about. It is a weird time for movies, but also an exciting one. Um, if you have Netflix or rent movies on iTunes or Hulu or all kinds of ways to see new movies and TV shows. But mostly we're talking about movies this week. Um, although I wanted before we started to give Joanna a chance to promote a special episode of Still Watching that if you listened to our conversation last week about The Haunting of Bly Manor, you might want to listen in. What is it, oh, Joanna? Hello. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're enjoying the spooky season with a Netflix binge of ghost stories, um, Anthony Brezikin, our colleague, uh, hopped on the Still Watching podcast, which usually Richard and I run, to do a special one-off episode about The Haunting of Bly Manor, which dropped in your feeds on Tuesday of this week and it's split in half so if you haven't watched the show yet and you're like is this worth my time I don't know uh, Anthony and I talk about sort of that that question is it worth your investment in a spoiler free way and then we dig into the whole series uh, in the back half of the episode so there's something there for everyone um, I found it really interesting to talk to Anthony about it especially because um, he's kind of not like he's his pals with Mike Flanagan who, who runs it so like he has some extra insight uh, into the whole process and their thinking behind it. So that was really educational for me. And yeah, so get spooky, listen Still Watching, and then get even spookier and, and stay on the feed. Richard and I are talking about adolescence. What could be spookier than that with We Are Who We Are? So there's a lot on offer uh, over on Still Watching. Tis the season. And also, um, you guys will have a new season, a full season of Still Watching coming, but you're going to do a, a special episode on The Mandalorian at the end of this month, too. So It's true. Anthony will be back to talk of The Mandalorian, and then Richard and I are getting murdery, prestige murder <laughs> with the Undoing uh, HBO series starring Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman. So it's going to be, um, there's a lot coming. Yeah. I'm really excited for both of those shows, like in very different ways. But yes. I, I, I feel like <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's been a while since I had a show I was really, like, deep in on, so that'll be fun. Okay. So, as I said, we're going to talk about movies, uh, all of which are available to watch at home in, to some degree. Um, I honestly, at some point, lose track of, like, what is playing in theaters and what isn't. But the first movie I wanted to get into is opening in theaters this week as well as uh, for rental. It's an IFC release, a movie that is called Shithouse. Um, Richard, I think you've seen it as well, and I think you might agree with me that it's a pretty terrible title for a really lovely little movie. It's a really bad title for a movie that I thought was pretty great. Yeah. 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 
Um, I mean, yeah, it's like it's a college movie. It is named after like a specific location that these characters go. And like, you know, I think we can all buy that there would be like a party house in the college named Shit House. But uh, the movie is a lot more than that. Uh, you want to kind of get into what the gist of it is, Richard? It doesn't like cover really new territory exactly it's about college and a little bit and romance and you know just to it's it's kind of like before sunrise but for college kids or i guess they were college kids in that in that movie weren't they but like a different generation's college kids mixed with a tiny twinge of like crazy the drake doremus film Hmm. but it's just like a really talky sweet movie and it's written and directed and stars uh this guy named cooper rafe uh, who I have no no don't know that I've ever seen in anything, but it's this kind of remarkable uh, exercise in auteurship from a young guy, and his co-star is uh, Dylan Glula, who people might know as Jane Krakowski's daughter on Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, and she's also in Her Smell last year. Um, she's great. Yes, and, yes. Yeah, she's yeah. she's kind of like, like making the rounds of like uh, prestige indies, which is impressive. Yeah, and she's very funny on Twitter. Um, hmm. So. Uh, she's often speaking truth to <laughs> the shittiness of Hollywood, which I, I appreciate uh, coming from a young person who is uh, enter- just entering into it. But yeah, and it's just about these two kids who who meet each other and, you know, kind of get to know one another over the course of a night. And then it follows them in the days after this first meeting. Um, it's moving. It's funny. It's really natural. The conversation, maybe it was there was a lot of improvisation i don't really know what the production was like but it feels very lived in very true it resists cliche almost every step of the way which is super appreciated in a movie that covers again such well-trod ground and something i really enjoyed about it um, or at least related to was that the lead character um, is a kid who just can't seem to get his footing under him at college and who feels genuinely homesick and expresses that in a way that maybe a lot of adolescent boys would not feel comfortable um, mm-hmm. who are supposed to be whooping it up at college and sleeping around and partying and all that stuff. And and he's attempting to do that sort of half-heartedly, but really the first third or half of the movie is about a kid who just like is lonely and wants to go home. And I found that really disarmingly sweet. And, um, and that did feel new. Yeah. And like, it's such an antidote to, you know, the way we see masculinity in college movies a lot, like the Animal House model or even like Everybody Wants Some, which I think is a really like nice movie and has well-rounded characters. But he's just this kid who like has a lot of feelings and wants to feel them and express them and doesn't feel bad about it. Um, And his roommate, who's kind of this like more stereotypical, like wild partier character is like someone you kind of see, like come to that place a little bit more slowly. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, in some ways the movie feels like, like a mumblecore movie from 10 years ago that somehow got dropped right now. But that character, I don't think is a, is anything I've ever seen before. And that was what felt really fresh about it. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that um, Galula's character, Maggie, like she, you know, could easily have been the dreaded manic pixie dream girl, but isn't. They just find a really good balance between these two characters. And I think even with, with um, Logan Miller, who plays the roommate, even the roommate gets a roundness that, you know, he, that character might not otherwise get. I, I think the squalor of two teenage boys dorm room is really well articulated without going mm-hmm. over the top. The parties mm-hmm. seem credible without, you know, they're not like these crazy bacchanalia that you see in some college movies. I think everything just has such a modest, particular, personal scale to it that 
you know, it, it made me, it makes me really excited to see what Rafe is going to do next. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't imagine all the tumult that college students must feel right now, given that they're either work, you know, learning remotely or they're stuck on campus and cannot leave and, or, you know, get showing up and then being told to go home because, you know, infection rates spiked. So I, I wonder if it would be almost kind of melancholy to watch this movie if you were that age right now and in college or trying to be in college. But I would imagine that in other senses, it will speak very keenly to, uh, you know, the youth experience now. But also, I think, you know, for oldies like us, Katie, it, it speaks universally, too. <laughs> Joanna being very youthful, actually, uh, <laughs> secretly. Yes, sorry. <laughs> you're, you're in college right now. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I don't know how to pivot away from Shithouse to the next movie I want to talk about, since they really are from wildly different spheres. But uh, we're kind of entering the documentary section of this week's show. Last week, there was a Netflix section. This week, it was doc- it's a doc section, although this is a Netflix documentary. Um, last week, Dick Johnson is Dead, which was a big Sundance hit. Uh, debuted on Netflix. We were going to talk about last week. Ran out of time, so we moved to here. Um, it is available worldwide. It is such a gem that it's almost like a gift that's kind of waiting for everybody on Netflix, which makes it sound like I'm an advertisement for it. But it's such a wonderful documentary it's been getting acclaim kind of all year and um you know i don't think most people are going to have been been hearing about it forever but i was and it really exceeded my expectations in a way it's um kirsten johnson who's a documentarian she basically makes a movie with her dad and about her dad as he uh kind of shows signs of memory loss he's in his late 80s uh he is aging and it's about them kind of together confronting the inevitability of mortality but it's kind of also a caper movie about them staging all these scenes of his death i don't know how anyone could pull it off, except that I did see someone pull it off. Um, Richard, I think you're a big fan of this movie as well. Yeah, I mean, it was it was hard to watch uh, in in some senses. My dad is in his 80s, and he's luckily not afflicted with Alzheimer's or other degenerative diseases. But you know, it's still it's it's a movie that really I think bravely but whimsically confronts mortality and how much you want to respond to the whimsy and how much you want to respond to kind of the horror uh, is really up to the individual viewer. But if nothing else, it's a really intriguing experiment in form because it's a documentary, but it's also there's fiction, there are fictionalized elements to it uh, in some senses. Um, yeah, it, it feels unique, which you can't say about a lot of movies um, really ever. So yeah. I appre- appreciated that. But it, I, I don't know. I, I think I was expecting to be a bit more cheered by it and I instead mm. felt kind of bummed out after <laughs> <laughs> I do see what you mean Richard because especially if you have older parents like it is like it's kind of you doing what she is doing where she's like oh wow okay this is inevitably going to come and I think you know confronting the inevitability of death is always going to be something that's difficult um, but I recommended this to a friend of mine who is a uh, who is a hospital chaplain and now is a hospice chaplain and so she's kind of like surrounded by death at all times and I think talking to her kind of put me in the right frame of mind for this movie where it's like, this is something that happens to everybody. This is something that everyone's afraid to talk about. Here is a way to kind of consider it while also like acknowledging the humanity of the people who go through it. Like the way that Dick Johnson is like, he's funny. It's capturing him at kind of his best, even as he's like kind of entering a decline. And she expresses her regret of not ever filming her mother who died with Alzheimer's uh, eight, eight years ago or so. And it just it makes him a human being, even as he's this kind of this vessel for sadness that she's experiencing. And I, I liked the joy in that. And also that they just got to spend all this time together. Like, it made me want to, like, go come up with a project to do with my dad so that, like, we can hang out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it certainly, you know, made me, like, look at Amtrak prices to see when I could take a train <laughs> home to Providence and see my, my dad. Um, I also think that, and this is a subtle 
thread throughout the movie. It's a really interesting look at faith. You know, mm-hmm. uh, her father was raised a Seventh Day Adventist, as was Kirsten Johnson, and the ways that they both kind of process that now. Neither of them are dogmatic or, or anything, but but in some senses that Dick Johnson is able to. I don't know. He, you know, he spent his life as a psychologist or psychiatrist. And so he's definitely a person of the mind of science. uh, And yet toward the end of his life is able to find a kind of comfort, I guess, in this notion of the great hereafter, you know, or the sweet hereafter or whatever. And I, and I I don't know, it, it appealed, it was a, it was a version of religion that appealed to me more than most do. So I appreciated that. I also appreciated finding out, which I didn't know that, Kirsten Johnson has children with Iris Sachs, the great filmmaker. <laughs> oh, it was Iris Sachs. Oh, my yeah. God. Who made that, like uh, Love is Strange and yeah. Frankie recently. Like, it, I was just like, huh? There's this great part where they established being like, here's the apartment where Kirsten lives and here's next door where uh, her kids and their dads live. And I was like, OK, we're just like this is not a, a conventional family relationship, but it's clearly one that works. And it's like not important to the story, but it's just presented. And it was totally fascinating. I did not catch up catch that that was Iris Sachs, though. Yeah, exactly. And to think that, you know, Dick Johnson did not live his life conservatively, really, but was raised in a relatively conservative world and and, and worldview. Uh, and, you know, here he is moving in with his daughter, whose gay co-parents live next door. And, yeah. you know, it's a very cosmopolitan, very contemporary sort of arrangement. Um, and um, yeah, so I think it just shows, among many other things, the kind of evolution of people and worldview and ideology and um, and how those things, yes, can clash with one another, but can also maybe especially at the end of one's life as one is kind of saying goodbye to things, kind of work in concert together um, to create a really, I don't know, holistic experience of the world. Yeah. See, there is some like encouragement to get from this movie, yes. right? Yes, there is. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a pure feel good, you know, finding Nola Holmes uh, as something to like put on. But I think as like... As a rewarding viewing experience, I mean, we're about to talk about a lot more movies that are available to watch, but it just kind of like it makes you feel like you've like been on a journey, um, which I really loved and probably would watch again. Um, another documentary that is now available to watch. I'm the only one who's seen it, so I will, I will talk about it quickly. But Alex Gibney's film, Totally Under Control. It's a neon release that's on Hulu this week, um, and it is being released before the election for a very specific reason. It is uh, the title is taken from. Uh, a quote from Donald Trump from one of his early speeches he gave about coronavirus, and it's basically this very exacting, detailed look at all the specific ways that America's coronavirus response failed. And depending on how closely you paid attention to all those White House press conferences, like there might be a lot of this that you know. There was a good bit of it that I didn't. I kind of just like lost track about like when were the tests bad and what did the CDC do and who did Deborah Burks work for. I think it's pretty easy to have lost track of a lot of this. And one of the most powerful parts of it is it just shows this direct timeline comparing us to South Korea and the way that they responded and the way it's not just anti-maskers or the way that like Americans are individualists that kind of made coronavirus go so out of control here. It's very specific, like who was in charge of approving tests and what did the tests require and like which government agency sat on their hands because maybe the president didn't want them to talk about it. Um, it's pretty damning, as I think you might expect. Alex Gibney is very experienced with this kind of documentary, like breaking down how you know complicated issues work. Um, so it's it's worth a look, even if it bums you out, it might make you mad and maybe it'll make you go vote, which I think is what he wants. So I would recommend that. It's a really vastly different documentary from Dick Johnson instead, but also worthwhile, I think. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. All right, now we're in the documentaries slash Broadway live part theater. of the show. Live, well, live theater, the best that we can do for now. Um, so out this Friday uh, is a filmed version of the Broadway show, What the Constitution Means to Me. And it joins uh, David Byrne's American Utopia, which is on HBO right now, as uh, two chronicles of very recent Broadway productions that you can watch from inside your house. Obviously, Hamilton was kind of a big splash earlier this year. Um, Joanna, you also watched What the Constitution Means to Me. And Richard, you saw it fancy uh, before it was even on Broadway. So we're all familiar with this show. Joanna, I've been talking for a long time. What did you think of what the Constitution <laughs> means to me? Well, it's funny. I like um, I was unaware of its existence, I am ashamed to say. And then Amazon, I, I don't usually talk about things that publicists send us in the mail, but I just want to like applaud Amazon for the attention-catching enormous cake that they sent TV critics around this. I got a huge what? cake I didn't in get the a mail. Cake? Uh-huh, yeah. Is it shaped uh, like the Constitution? <laughs> no, it's just like giant and yellow with like uh like a massive jimmy cord. Do you know those cakes with like you cut it and then all the like jimmies come spilling out from oh, the middle? Yeah. It's huge. It's a huge cake. I gave part of it away. I don't know what I'm going to do with so much cake. Anyway, I was just sort of like I was like, "Well, what is this thing?" And then you mentioned that you want to talk about on the show and I was like oh, okay well I will I will for those cake plus Katie Rich means I will <laughs> that's the winning formula accept a cake as an influencer in the sphere uh, for everyone else because I saw some other TV critics posting their cake on online and theirs all had a thing on the top of their cake that says like we all deserve to be in the preamble and like blue writing on top of this big yellow cake. Um, I did not have that. So like <laughs> my cake was not really actually branded to the it show more, at all. More mysterious <laughs> that way. Um, anyway, uh, cake aside. Uh, I, so I decided to watch the show. I didn't know what it was at all going in. And then it started and I was like, oh, this is a live theater. Yes. Um, <laughs> And then it, at, at the start, I was a little like, uh, uh, you know, uh, confused as to why you, Katie, wanted to talk to it because I like, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. But like all great things in live theater, it takes like several twists and turns and becomes like incredibly emotional and passionate. And um, while always staying 
kind of fun and cute and uh, not almost always. And I was completely enthralled by it. I like I really I really felt it on a profound level. Um, the timing of it, uh, Amazon could not be smarter as we are in the grips of a SCOTUS, another sort of hellish SCOTUS confirmation hearing week. And so, yeah, so this engagement in we should say so Heidi Shrek is the is the uh, power behind this play. It's not a one woman show, but it is effectively a one woman show um, written and performed by and, you know, set is a kind of like a cute little. I remember when I was 15, I used to do these competitions, you know, talking about the Constitution, defending the Constitution uh, for scholarship money. Uh, But then it turns into something much like deeper about the various protections of the constitutions and the way in which they have protected people in the way in which they have been eroded and and specifically, you know, she's speaking specifically to a white woman's experience, which is something she seems very aware of throughout the show as she references the ways in which the erosion of certain protections have been harder on women of color or other um demographics in the country. So she's not like, you know, I was a little worried for a second that this would just reek of like blinkered white feminism or something like that. But I don't think it does, especially like given, you know, who she brings up at the end and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, At the end of the play, she brings up, I think it was two different uh, teenage girls, both girls of color who um, debated with her about whether or not to keep the Constitution, which is um, it's a fantastic way to end a show. Yeah, it's really it's it's fun and it's effective and and the young woman who at least was on my uh, screener, the one that like made the final recording, I would guess, uh, is just like incredible, uh, so impressive. And um, yeah, if you watch the credits, it shows the other one. Um, oh, okay, okay. Um, one of them, Rosalie, is I think the one who's uh, yeah. is in the main recording, and then Thursday Williams, what an amazing name. Uh, it was the other one because you know they're teenagers, so they're not going to be debating on right. stage on Broadway every night. Right. So uh, yeah. anyway, they were they were both great. So that was my experience. Uh, I guess this, that was my turn to monologue, but that was my experience. <laughs> <laughs> with it, I really, I really loved it, and I watched it back to back with the next one we're going to talk about. And so it was like last night; it was like a double feature. So it really did feel like I was at the theater as much as I could be uh, in 2020. So yeah, yeah, Richard, you saw this off Broadway as well as on Amazon. So how how did that translation work from watching something in a crowded theater to at uh, home by yourself? Well, do you want to hear a kind of sordid confession as a dedicated theater goer? Um, <laughs> I saw that show. It was off, off, off Broadway in the East Village years ago um and it's changed a lot from what i remember not i mean the 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 bones are still the same but like she's added more and it's become a richer i think um and also because she added onto it as she had the experience of performing the show which is fine it, it like the constitution it can be a living document this mm. play but i when i saw it i was catching up with an old friend from college who i did theater with she's a playwright um a really great one emily denninger hello and she said, oh, I'm, I have tickets to this show. It's kind of like later at night. Would you want to go after we have like happy hour drinks? We had a lot of happy hour drinks. And I went <laughs> and I enjoyed it. And I walked out and we had a lot to talk about it. And then the next day I was a little fuzzy on it. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then years later, it became this huge Broadway thing. And so I was so grateful that this filmed version exists um, because it now I can really engage with the show in a way that um, is not affected by um, Happy Hour Rosé. So I appreciated that as a very... Um, <laughs> and that, that that is one of the great things about committing theatrical performances to film is that right. um, it's not as ephemeral. It's, you know, it'll exist and people can revisit it and whatever. Um, but I think it it really works 
as a film piece. And I think that part of that is that it's a one person show for the most part. There are a couple other people in it, but it's mostly Shrek. And and Mario Heller just films it in the mo in the in the right intimate way while still making it feel both theatrical and cinematic. And it's engaging to really see Shrek's emotions up close because I think that when the Tonys nominated it for all the uh, the categories they did, one of the kind of most breakthrough nominations was that Heidi Shrek got a Best Actress nomination, and because she was always adamant that it was a performance, not that she was being disingenuine but or insincere but like that she was it was acting you know and Mm -hmm. i think that this film version um in that it's able to get close-ups and things like that really show you how much work she's doing in that performance um without it feeling inorganic or or forced um so yeah I, i i was expecting it to be maybe I mean, still that interesting piece of writing and acting, but maybe the the film itself would be a little dry, a little stagey. And I, I found it anything but. It really, it really breathes. Yeah, she lost to Elaine May uh, in the Waverly Gallery, which I guess you can't. You can't argue with that. Can't yeah. argue with that. <laughs> I have uh, a few shows that I would like a do over on to erase Happy Hour Rose, uh, Foggy Memories. <laughs> <laughs> And replace them with crisp, clean, beautiful camera angles uh, streaming on Amazon versions of. So Yeah, I mean, between this and then uh, American Utopia, which uh, Joanna, you mentioned we want to talk about, which is uh, you know filmed by Spike Lee, an adaptation of uh, or a filmed version of David Byrne's Broadway show. Um, it, it just makes you wonder, like, I know it's expensive to do this for every Broadway show, but it's just amazing to be able to experience something like this yourself. And, you know, the barriers for people to see Broadway shows are pretty well established, like geographically and, and cost wise. And it's so wonderful to be able to experience in this way. Yeah, I I I agree with both of you, um, but especially Richard's point about I, I, it made me just feel like I was still participating in the world, especially since both of those shows, what the Constitution means to me more overtly, but both of them have such a relationship with the audience, as all live theater should, but I think more overtly, you know what I mean, bring the audience into the performance. Um, not in like a cringy end of Mamma Mia, everyone has to dance in the aisle sort of way. Is but that what like, happens in Mamma Mia? I never saw Mamma Mia on Broadway. <laughs> yeah, you have like dance at the end. And I'm like, I would rather not. Um, but everyone's dancing at American Utopia. But uh, yeah, it just, it just made me, I mean, it made me nostalgic and sad that I'm not seeing any light theater right now because um, all three of us love theater. But I was like, this is the close. I mean, closer even than Hamilton felt because a lot of Hamilton, they shot in an empty theater. It doesn't feel like the audience feels like an important part of it. But what the Constitution means to me, you know, we'll, we'll get more into American Utopia, but what, like what the Constitution means to me would often cut away to audiences, not just for like generic laughter responses, but really looking for like people who are having an emotional response or people yeah. or there's one really great shot of a woman who is just like not enjoying what she's saying about the constitution and i just think that that's like <laughs> that's part of it you know what i mean it's all like that that interactive aspect of it is is really important and i just i and the timing of it is like is really wild because um you know amazon surely had this planned um 
you know, for a long time, but I don't know if this, uh, when they land on this specific release date, but it just feels like uh, nothing could be more important to watch this week than this, uh, than this particular show. Yeah. I really enjoyed watching it instead of the ongoing Supreme Court series. (laughs) It feels like, and actually if you look it up on um, Wikipedia, there's a whole section for the Brett Kavanaugh hearings in like on the Wikipedia page for this play, um, which is that, you know, it, it was around before the Kavanaugh hearings began. But it is uh, it's fascinating uh, timing. Um, so, OK, so American Utopia, it premiered at Toronto. I think I must have talked about it uh, during the Toronto Film Festival. It is a it would be a great movie to see in a theater, but I think was also a really great movie to see while stuck at home and not being able to see plays. Um, it is also timely. Joanna, as you said, like there's a whole part where David Byrne talks about how everyone should vote and vote in local elections. But I I, I don't know. I've been like kind of telling everybody in the world about this movie for months, it feels like. So, um Joanna, how did it how did it strike you as oh, part of this double feature? Can I guys, can I tell you my talking head story? Is that okay? Yeah. Um so my relationship with talking heads is this. Uh David Byrne, lead singer, talking heads. When I was a kid, I was like, I'm sure anyone who's listened to this podcast already knows, deeply uncool. Um, and like did not listen to any for for like a lot of my adolescence, did not listen to like contemporary top 40 music at all, but listened to a lot of like oldies and show tunes because I was just just really, really as uncool as I could be. And um and I had this aunt and she made me talking heads tapes and I loved them. And they were like the only band I listened to that were not just like, like contemporary. Well, I mean, it was a little, you know, it was a little in the past uh, by the time I was a kid or whatever. Like talking heads was like from my aunt's like heyday or whatever. But like it was not just cool, but it was like cooler than what other people were listening to because it wasn't top 40. It was the talking heads, which is like, which is so fun and pleasing to listen to. And I can't. I can't pretend that the Talking Heads aren't like mainstream, but they also have always been, and David Byrne has always been somewhat avant-garde. And so my feeling is that my relationship with the Talking Heads is like the coolest thing about me as a kid because I loved the Talking <laughs> Heads only because my one aunt like gave me Talking Heads cassettes, uh, and then later I had like a bunch of CDs and stuff like that, and I just like knew I knew all the Talking Heads songs as like a really uncool kid, and um. So that's, you know, and then um, there's obviously a, already exists a very famous filmed Talking Heads concert, Stock Making Sense, which I watched with my aunt. Um, <laughs> like, uh, and, and that's a really enjoyable experience. And this is, you know, this is a, a stage show. Some people might already be slightly familiar with it because they performed a portion of it on Saturday Night Live in February 2020. Oh, uh, so, that. yeah. So if you recall that performance, which had a bunch of people in matching gray suits and bare feet dancing around and having like the most joyous time of their lives. That's that's <laughs> what American Utopia is. And uh, I I loved it. It was like sunshine, sunshine to me uh, watching it. Um, David Byrne is so odd, but in a way and artistic, but in a way that I feel like and maybe this is just my own bias has always been accessible. It's not he's doing something that's like off kilter, but not in a way that just feels so genuine. Mm-hmm. And it feels so inclusive and it doesn't feel like, look at my art, you couldn't possibly understand it. But just like, look at my look at my art with some like really banging melodies, like to go with <laughs> it and just enjoy it and enjoy, uh, enjoy the message. And, uh, you know, because the, the show has, a, you know, a lot of really, really famous, well-known Talking Head songs and then some lesser well-known Talking Head songs, uh, you know, as any sort of like concert that you might go 
Jesse would have. And uh, yeah, fantastic. And like the audience does seem to be like mama meaing its way through the whole thing, like on its feet for most yeah, of the time. Yeah, they're dancing the whole time. Yeah. And they and they go dance through the audience at the end right, of the show. Right, so, right, you exactly. know, it's all included. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there's something like, saying like, look at my art part of it. It's like, look at my art and how fun, how much fun I'm having while I'm doing it. And Stop Making Sense has some of that energy too. You know, he like dances in the giant suit and dances with the lamp on stage and like, he has a weird energy. Like, he's this weird, stiff white guy doing all of these, like, strange dances where you're like, hmm, what is the artistic intent of this? But then, like, behind him is, like, the drummer and the bassist, like, having a ball. And in this, like, he has this huge, like, backup ensemble of a bunch of musicians. And then these two dancers, who I think maybe the dancers are the key to the whole thing. It's a, it's a black woman and then a white guy with red hair and, like, a full face of very elaborate makeup. Yeah. And they don't match each other physically at all, but they are dancing together perfectly. Like, they're so in sync. And something about the two of them where you're like they do not look like quote-unquote backup dancers as you expect it for like you know a j-lo half halftime show right. or something like that but they're so perfect at it and it makes it feel open and like everybody can be part of this which i think is very much the message of the whole thing yeah exactly it's like it's rather than hit you over the head with a like everyone's included message it's just yeah. like let me just show you these two figures which ex- like exactly as you say Katie really achieve I, I remember them perfectly from the SNL performance just like really achieve that like everyone in the pool sort of vibe yeah. um, I looked up an interview with uh, Chris Yarmo who is the, the male dancer of those two and he basically was talking about how they were touring this show kind of all around the world and he didn't want to be mistaken for just some random straight white guy so he decided to wear the full face of makeup himself um, which is just another way to yeah. argue of how much it's like open to all <laughs> um, it's also just really fun like I made my kids watch like all the drums segments yes. because it's really a great time um, and all the you know singing and close quarters uh, like uh, like what the constitution means to me in a different way just made me think about all these people in a room together and what a foreign concept that feels like now which is maybe another thing that makes these so special my other weird talking head connection is that in, when I went to college in my dorm, there was this like pretty oddball guy named Pascal who was great, but odd. And, um, and he was talking about how his aunt was in a band <laughs> and then it was the talking heads. And I was what? like, what? And it was real. It was true. And I was like, and I was the only one of like our contemporaries who cared <laughs> because no one else cared uh, at, at my college, in my dorm at least, about the talking heads. And he was just like, he was like, yeah, I had to like ring it out of him. And he finally told me and I was like, that's wow. so cool. And he was like, uh, thanks. So anyway, I'm two degrees of separation away from the talking heads, but hopefully someday closer. And and um, yeah, Richard, did you have you seen this at all? What, what do you think? I haven't, but I'm I'm really encouraged to. You know, I, I I tend to resist both the concert film and the state the filmed play, even though I appreciate that they exist, right? Um, for for posterity's sake. But this one sounds fresh enough and interesting enough and different enough that perhaps other people listening to this, like me, who maybe feel unfairly a little allergic to the form, uh, will be encouraged by your 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 raves about it. And Richard, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of the state of Broadway in general as we we get into this. The Tony nominations are going to come out Thursday. Uh, as you're mm-hmm. listening to this, they're probably already out. Um, I'm personally just glad they're doing it. Like they've just been on hold in such a holding pattern, as is Broadway. Um, New York City just announced that basically shows won't be able to open until June. And I think some are not even counting on opening that early. Um, it's a sad time. Like it's a sad time for movie theaters. I feel like Broadway is in even more dire straits. Um, do you feel like the Tonys are at least some kind of like shot in the arm for the industry? in some way 
I would like to think so. Um, but I don't know how much that kind of symbolism matters when, you know, the reality is that there's been little funding to support, uh, you know, the theater community in New York or beyond during this time, you know, I was talking about it with a friend who works in the industry. And, you know, I think a lot of times from from a certain distance, you know, oh, Broadway actor, and, and then they kind of just think of Nathan Lane, and they assume they're all rich. And well, no, sure. most of them aren't. And, and, and then there yeah. is everyone else. And, and um, I think the Tonys will hopefully, at the very least, keep the sort of you know, the, the dream alive or the, the, the appreciation alive, but, uh, it's, it's, it's not empty on the part of the American theater wing, but it's a sort of vain gesture if there isn't actually more institutional support. And, and the problem is, is that, you know, in New York city, if we're talking about Broadway in particular, there has been little effort from both city and state government to actually address this like ever widening chasm in the New York state economy. Yeah. Yeah, because Broadway is an enormous industry that is like ticket takers and backup dancers and orchestra players who like are it's a it's just a ton of people. It's not all Nathan Lane, as you were saying, Um, but also, as you were saying before, like a lot of people can't afford to go see Broadway. Like it's got this kind of like elitist vibe about it that I think makes it harder for like politicians to rally behind. But that is how something dies if you don't actually do something about it. Yeah. And I think in recent years, um, there had been shows uh, like Hamilton um, that had faced with, I mean, not that the Hamilton producers were like too concerned about like people, you know, people who couldn't afford $500 tickets, but, but, you know, rush tickets and things like that, that that conversation had been steadily ramping up in the past few seasons. And I wonder now if this unprecedented over a year long break, I mean, knock on wood that it's just that long. I wonder how that will affect that conversation. Will it be, well, we now need to charge, you know, an arm and a leg because we have to put everyone two seats apart and blah, blah, blah. Or will be yeah. there a sense to make it more democratic to maybe lower production costs, not in terms of what they pay, you know, craftspeople and performers, but like maybe we don't need the pyrotechnics and the video and all that stuff um, to kind of lower the overhead to get more people in because they'll just want people to go see theater and get excited about it again. Um, I hope it's yeah. the latter, obviously, but... Yeah. And I hope that, um, you know, the Tonys are going to be happening, I guess, sometime in the next few months, um, you know, while all the theaters are closed. And it just makes me think about the Oscars in April and hope that um, it's not going to be a similar situation then with like, you know, movie theaters out of business, um, which seems pretty possible at this point. So, you know, the Tonys kind of have no good options, but I hope maybe with some time by the end of April, the movie theater industry will be a little bit better off. I remain ever hopeful, both with, you know, seeing movies and seeing plays that, when this is all quote unquote over, let's say we're all vaccined. I, I don't know what over looks like, but um, that people just want to get out of their house and go see something. Oh my God, do I <laughs> ever know? want to get out of my house? I'm hoping that that's a general sentiment um, and not maybe a boutique one, you know, uh, in yeah. which case I think theater would become even that much more rarefied. Yeah. Cost wise. Yeah, <laughs> to speak to at least wanting to get out of your house. Uh, I just thought I would mention for posterity that I went to the drive-in again to see Tenet again, only because wow. only because a couple of friends of mine really wanted to see it, and they're but like, "You drove well, backwards can't... there, right?" <laughs> I, I yeah. did this time. I yeah, it was a temporal pincer attack. Anyway, um, that's how like thirsty. <laughs> 
I am for like communal theatrical experiences is that like listening to my friends laugh at Kenneth Branagh's Russian accent through their car window into my car window was like enough for me to want to go back. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, the thirst is real. It's really true. So, Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Um, okay, well, to close this out, uh, after all these titles we've talked about, we're now getting to, I think, the uh, the truest big Oscar contender um, we've had in a while. It is, of course, a Netflix release because Netflix is just kind of pumping out Oscar contenders at this point because they can. Um, the Trial of Chicago 7, it is uh, Aaron Sorkin written and directed. It was going to be a Paramount release and then Netflix picked it up this summer, I think, sometime as the pandemic was making itself clear. And it's uh, it's been in theaters for a week or two, actually, and it's coming to Netflix this Friday. Uh, Richard, you are reviewing it for Vanity Fair, so maybe you should start with, um, I think you and I, before we started, we both like, hmm, yeah, we pretty much liked it. It's a, it's, 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 a it. it's a hit right over home plate. Guys, I yeah. loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I, I said in my review that it's solidly made. It's not visually interesting. Uh, it's pretty square in its kind of just courtroom drama form. But the writing, you know, I, I think sometimes Sorkin's powers can be used for good. Um, and um, <laughs> in this one, he really could because he targets it more narrowly. I mean, I think that the, the newsroom was so erratic in its portraiture of media and, you know, current events uh, and so kind of almost, you know, overly ambitious in its scope, um, as one could argue was the West Wing. But this, you know, is focusing on a particular time and place and event granted one that has many many pertinent you know details pertinent to today but in that focus like i think that sorkin finds his stride and and really makes his points cogently uh gets good performances out of most of his actors and you know maybe some of the few surviving members of this will take issue with it i, I you know um but i think even if it's not a perfect capturing of of those exact people in that exact trial i think the bigger things it talks about, you know, police, government, uh, prosecution of, of, of dissent and, and all those things, they so register with the, the current moment that um, the film, in a weird way, feels kind of undeniable. It, 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 it you know, it might be cor- too corny for some people or too, too square, but I think it will register really well with um, a certain contingent of the uh, Academy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... Im- I. I, I for for some reason I thought you didn't like the movie Richard and I can't remember where I got that uh, impression and so I I was kind of like spiky and defiant uh, and embarrassed by how much I liked it which is how I feel sometimes when I like things that you don't because I think you're so smart <laughs> and I'm like oh I have to like defend why I didn't like the thing that Richard didn't like but anyway so I was like prepared to be kind of like embarrassed by how much I liked it 
part of it, I think, is, you know, especially since I haven't been doing the good work you guys have been doing in 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 tracking down all the like festival screeners and stuff like that. I will get to them, I promise. But um, so this just felt like the, you know, other than my two forays to Tenet, um, felt like, you know, a, a movie, like a real movie uh, in a way that I haven't felt um in a long time. And what I think is interesting, you know, the thing I did, I, I was aware of the story of the Chicago seven um, more so than, you know, I was, I was talking to some friends about it. I was like, have you guys heard of the trial of Chicago seven? I'm really excited to watch it. And they're like, what is that? I was like, well, it's about the Chicago seven. And they were like, who are they? <laughs> it's like, not like the <laughs> easiest thing to know, you know? Yeah, I guess. And so I don't know where I, maybe I just like looked it up when I heard that this was in the, or I don't know how I learned about it, but I was like, I, I knew the story. Um, but there was so much I didn't know, first of all. And secondly, I did that thing after you watch something based on a true story where, you know, you dive down like a Wikipedia hole or, you know, once once the thing is out, there should be exploiter pieces on uh, any of your favorite websites. Maybe VanityFair.com. You know, I want to read some stuff from by Jordan Hoffman that's going to be up later this week uh, on VanityFair.com. But there's so much that Sorkin left out and so much that's so sensational that he left out that then that made me just want to think about, okay, if he left out this stuff that is just like, you know, surely if this were uh, an American crime story FX limited series, we would have seen all of these antics and like Connie Britton mm. would have showed up in an elaborate wig to do something. But like, um, <laughs> but so like, okay, if Sorkin, obviously it's a feature film, like we, we only have a certain amount of time, but if Sorkin left these various things out or, uh, truncated the timeline on certain things or elided certain things, then what is he really trying to get at? Like, what's what's in? Uh, this is how I think about, like, adaption, adaptations of books all the time. Like, if you left that out, then what was so important about what you left in? So what's so important about what Sorkin left in? And for me, it's really, I mean, uh, not just for me, I think in general, the, the film is most interested in this journey that two characters, Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden, take towards understanding each other. And so Tom Hayden is played by Eddie Redmayne, Abby Hoffman is played by Saucer Baron Cohen, who represent two very different sides of the left. There are very, various people on trial here, and we should say that I, I just want to make it clear that at a certain point, this was the Chicago 8 because Bobby Seale was unjustly sort of thrust into the midst of this. Um, Which the movie does a really pretty good job of explaining, I think, of why he was there and then why he didn't really belong there. Right, even though it does... Uh, Actually, like it's it's uh, a lot of it is horrific. Uh, what happens with Bobby Seal, and it is a very soft pedal version of what actually happened with Bobby Seal. So we should yeah, say that. I looked but, that up after yeah. watching it, and like, I mean, I don't think it makes it look like he was treated fairly in the movie. But yeah, no. when you read about what really happened, you're like, oh wow, it was so much worse, so much worse. Um, but this idea of like, okay, so let's say the white left, the white left, and their journey towards each other. I just think is interesting, especially given like, uh, you know, at least how much I've been thinking about in both this past election, this current election. I mean, these like these these those run of three things that we're talking about here are so perfectly timed to interact with what we're thinking about now um, as we're thinking about leftist protests, as we're thinking about the ways in which the law is against uh, the the right to protest in many ways and stuff like that, but also the div the deep divisions within leftist movements, and not that we all need to be in lockstep by any stretch of the imagination, but like the way in which that can get in the way of all the things we do agree on, I found very powerful, and maybe that's the like 
<laughs> centrist in me and maybe a very like very 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 left wing person would be like heck no no compromise or whatever and that's fine um but for me maybe it was like i i want to i want to shout out a mike uh hogan phrase which I think he got from his lovely wife, which is uh, liberal Doritos. Like occasionally, I mean, Sorkin is like the king of serving up yeah, liberal Doritos that's sometimes. What I was say. And and uh, Trial of Chicago Seven definitely has that to a certain degree, though less so than some of his other properties. And I um, I just enjoyed enjoyed the snack. I guess is what I have to say. And the the courtroom drama aspect of this, I think, is such a, such a perfect venue for that impulse of Sorkin's where, like, everyone gets to stand up and make a big speech and everyone kind of is clever in the exact same way. Uh, but in a courtroom where you've got, like, Mark Rylance yelling at Frank Langella, who's playing the judge, like, it just works. It all moves, like, beautifully. And then you get these flashbacks to, like, them actually in the protest. Um and, like, I don't know, like, their action sequences in some way that I think, like, work pretty well. Like, they build to these interesting climaxes. It's just, you know, you feel Sorkin kind of pulling you along on a string through this whole movie. And you're like, great. Love this ride. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I, you know, I showed this movie to my in-laws who were, you know, both born in 1948. Like, they're the, like, exact age to remember this well. And they loved it, of course. Um, and I, it was the second time I'd seen it, and I loved it again. So, Richard, you were saying that, like, it will appeal to a certain segment of the Academy, which I think, you know, we you know think of as the Green Book voters, maybe. Um, I do think it has, like, an even broader appeal than that. And as something that's going to, like, show up on Netflix that you can, like, watch and kind of, like, settle in with, I think it, it it's grabbing in a way that, like, you know, like, Roma probably wasn't. Yeah, and I think that something I wrote about in the review was that it could be, from from one angle, it certainly could be looked at as depressing, that so much of the mechanics of American power were the same then as they are now. So much mm-hmm. of the fight against it was treated the same and was saying the same things. And, it, you know, to feel, oh, we're constantly stuck in this, you know swirl of whatever we are you know but i think it's also galvanizing and i I think about a younger person who might tune into this movie on the off chance you know just looking through netflix and you know they will hopefully see so much of the current moment reflected back at them but also it's instructive for a younger generation to including our own uh to be reminded of like the Vietnam War and what, you know, and and what these people were protesting so adamantly at the time. And I think, you know, the way the film ends, I won't spoil it, like, really drives that point home that like, this was about death and unnecessary death and horrible death for both Americans and Vietnamese people and Cambodian people and people the world over. And so I think it serves kind of two dual functions quite well um, in that way. And if we want to be cynical about it or not cynical but you know retrain our focus to like little gold men's <laughs> raison d'etre is i think that like if, if we're going to do an anthony hopkins gets his net first oscar for 30 years uh for the father which i'm still predicting like franklin jealous never won an oscar and he would be a great supporting actor pick even though he's playing this like horrid villain but he's so yeah. good at it i think he's, he's the so best performance at- in the film I think the problem that Chicago 7 is going to have is that it's a ton of great supporting actor performances. Yeah. And I guess Eddie Redmayne could be lead. Like Sasha Baron Cohen, I guess they could also put in lead if they wanted to. But I think that's like a classic showy supporting actor uh, performance to get in there. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it because it's it's a ton of great performances all in the same category. Um, don't worry, though. They won't be uh, bothering any of the actress categories. No, um, I don't love the way. No. I don't, I don't want to get into it too much. But like there's like basically two significant female characters in no. this movie. And they both have this like kind of problematic like, oh, but they're beautiful. 
beautiful and they're attractive yeah. to the men around them. And ugh, it's, it's not, not great. great. It's not great. Um, but in terms but of although of... Uh, um, Caitlin Fitzgerald plays one of them and she's terrific, uh, even she if is her fantastic. character is not treated as well as she should be. <laughs> she is fantastic. But come um, on, guys, lady protesters. That doesn't sound. <laughs> that's not. That, that's an FBI no. plant, obviously. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to say about Eddie Redmayne. Like, I think I'd gotten to a point where I thought I knew every every, every like flavor that Eddie Redmayne could deliver to me, and I was just sort of a little over it uh to be very blunt and i thought he really gave me something different in this and i loved him in this i thought he was fantastic and i think just like his hunched world weary posture and like and the like the major flaws in Tom Hayden. I just thought, I thought that was just like really fantastic. And I loved Sasha Baron Cohen in this. And I usually cannot tolerate Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, That's I thought, fascinating because he is like coming in like 11, coming in at 11 Sasha Baron Cohen in this. Yeah, but Abby Hoffman like, yeah, w- deserves that. That's yeah. who. That's the character. You know what I mean. So like, even in something as like gothic and uh, whimsical, quirky, over the top as Sweeney Todd, I was like, okay, Sasha Baron Cohen, dial it down. <laughs> but <laughs> in this, I was like, turn it up, man. I love this. Uh, Jeremy Strong, our favorite uh, boy. Say, you all um, know who I loved most in this movie <laughs> as Jerry Rubin. Fantastic, just so really good. good. Um. I wanted to shout out um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah, who I think has not say. been great in anything in a long time. Like he's, you know, yeah. he was in Snowden, which nobody saw. He was in The Walk, which was pretty silly. Um, and he's just like, you know, he's like this grown-up, like stiff suit guy who like might otherwise identify with the protesters because he's around the same age. Um, and he's just really good and solid and like not showy because God knows there's enough showiness going on in here. Um, I really liked him, and he, you know, he's going toe to toe with Mark Rylance, which I, you can't, you know, underestimate because Mark Rylance is who he is, and they're like right up against each other. Mark Rylance in a truly extraordinary wig. I just want to shout out the. <laughs> Oh, the, the, wigs, the wigs in this movie are really special. <laughs> well, and I think I think also to like to Richard's earlier point about like how instructive this can be, it was actually like as devastating as it is to watch like the villainy of Franklin Jella, the mistreatment of um, you know, the Bobby Seale character, the mistreatment of all the characters, like it was also oddly uplifting for like because uh, you know I, I've been watching footage of uh, and, and participating in some protests over this last year, and the the footage of protests that go really bad with the with the cops um, that have come out this last year, like you you could tend to think like our entire culture is spinning off the rails, which like I don't know, maybe it is, maybe maybe that's where we are, but. There was something really like same as it ever was to quote David Byrne about this that maybe feels pessimistic because we're like, what kind of progress have we made? But maybe feels healing in that like we got through this, we affected some change with this, a government trying to suppress your voice is not new to America, you know, and, and any scholar of the 70s could tell you that, but like it's not new to America and so keep fighting and keep raising your voice up just the way that like your parent, you know, the the boomers who you might think are totally square did once upon a time, you know, sort mm-hmm. of thing. So Yeah, and I think the fact that um that the parallels are so clearly to the protest for racial justice that we've had this year, and this is a super white movie um, made by a kind of famously white filmmaker, um, and that it works as well as it does is kind of a testament to it. And it didn't, you know, it was made before the protest began, so it kind of didn't have a chance to like kind of revert back. But I think the way that it gives a lot of time to the Bobby Seale character. You have Fred Hampton as a supporting character in it. 
it's not about race. It's about the Vietnam War and like the race specific. At certain points, they're like, we want to make it clear that we're not fighting against the cops. And you're like, oh, well, this time we were fighting against the cops. Um, but it, it just works well as kind of an echo from the past, like what you were saying, Joanna. And I don't I don't even know quite how it pulls that off. And I'm, I'm sure there are people who would say it doesn't pull it off, but I thought it worked well. It didn't feel wildly out of touch, which is kind of what I was afraid it would be as this like look at past protests instead of the more uh, relevant recent ones. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with Richard saying that this feels like a little square and that it's not like got a huge amount of di- directorial flair to it. At the same time, it is far and away the best thing that Sorkin's ever directed. Once upon a time, you know, this this project has a really long road to the finished product here at a certain point. Uh, Spielberg was supposed to direct, you know, and, and we know that like what Sorkin's writing can look like when you have someone like a Fincher directing and stuff like that. It does, it feels like even more elevated and special. Um, but I thought he did a really good job. I really like the way in which the events of the protest unroll in flashback or in testimony or what have you so that we're not watching it quite literally and in that way i mean that's that's a flair of the um of the screenplay but like you know sorkin has tried that flair with the screenplay before with stuff like the steve jobs film and stuff like that and it didn't really work out and i think it is the right amount of flair here i i think it, it makes the whole thing it keeps you from like Watching the events of a protest and then sitting in a staid courtroom drama sort of thing, you get both. You get you get I don't know. I want to say like exciting action when it's like awful brutality, but like you get that calibration of of uh, your pulse rate, I guess, as you're as you're watching it as the thing unfolds. I want to say maybe to close it that, uh, as we said, like Bobby Seale is a is a smaller role in this, um, but it does talk about the Black Panther Party. But also between this and then um, Mangrove, which is an episode of Steve McQueen's Small Axe uh, series that's going to be on Amazon next month. And then also um, if they had Fred Hampton movie, Judas and the Black Messiah comes out. It's a Warner Brothers release. It's scheduled for 2021. We don't know if it's going to be in this year's Oscar race, but uh, it stars Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya. Um, it's just going to be a really interesting year for historical considerations of the Black Panther Party, which I think maybe are overdue on screen. So Long lots overdue. for yeah. all of us to learn. Yeah. And, yeah. and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, who won an Emmy for Watchmen, Jeremy Strong, also Emmy winner in this cast, um, I thought he was really good in this in a way really that good. Um, I didn't I, recognize him. Like, I'd something about the like Bobby Seal wig totally threw me off. And I, I saw the credits and realized it was Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. I think he had a really uh, kind of a tough job in Watchmen in that he had like to keep the reality of what he was playing and stuff like that under wraps. And there's just like, I, I didn't. I th- I felt so much more from him in this than I did in Watchmen, and I was really I'm really excited to see whatever I liked him in Watchmen, but I loved him in this, and I'm really excited to see whatever he does next. So, I feel like we've now named every single person in the cast, but uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. plays uh, Fred Hampton <laughs> in a pretty, pretty yes. small role in there, but I've seen him in a couple things, and like I knew people who were big fans of his, and I hadn't quite clicked, but uh, I thought he was great in a pretty small role. And I mean, and John Carroll Lynch while we're here. <laughs> He's great. But John Carroll, I mean, that's I mean, that's what's really funny about the that's what's really fun about the opening of the movie is it really lets you know these different flavors of leftist protesters that you're going to yeah. meet. And yeah. what an interesting Motley crew was on trial here. Um, the entire left is on trial. And, and, and I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. I would love for people to watch this and then tweet at us who their supporting actor uh, contender would be from this, because I kind of feel like you could come up with 12 different answers. I think if they're smartest, they would put Sasha Baron Cohen, because that's that's category fraud, uh, because he should be in lead, I think. But 
<laughs> if you asked me a week ago how I would feel about a Sasha Baron Cohen Oscar campaign, I would say absolutely not. Hey, um, they might throw him in there for Borat. <laughs> you don't know. He might go in two different categories. <laughs> but I'm I'm really into I'm really into Sasha Baron Cohen and in, in supporting. Uh, I think that would be great. That would be a, a, an unprecedented thing because he's also getting the Thalberg Award for the Brothers Grimsby this year. I think. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's true. Uh, the Oscars are really just going hard on the the Coensons this year. The Brothers Grimsby, I think, is actually the only movie I was supposed to review for Vanity Fair, but I walked out of, and so I could not review. <laughs> I, I left halfway through. It was like absolutely not. <laughs> that's a hard. So this note is an improvement me. over that. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. And now to close out this week's show, we're going to share an interview that I did with Carol Marshall and Randy Emmerman, who are the co-founders of Film Fest 919, which is my beloved local film festival in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, I didn't know if they'd be able to pull it off this year. Neither did they. But they have managed to construct two outdoor screening venues. Uh, one of them is a drive-in. And they're having a couple indoor screenings as well. They've got some great titles, including One Night in Miami, which we've talked about here, MLK, FBI, speaking of 60s activists. So I'm really proud of them for pulling it off. And they kind of shared the detail of how they did it, which I think maybe we can all learn from as we figure out how we're going to safely see movies going forward. Uh, So let's listen to that interview. So I'm here on Zoom, although normally we would be in person at a theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, um, with the co-founders of Film Fest 919, Randy Emmerman and Carol Marshall. Um, Hi, guys. It's nice to see you, even if it's an unusual circumstance. Hi. Um, Good to see you. <laughs> so I, I wanted to have you guys on, not only because I, you know, I even though Film Fest 919 is going on this year, I miss the version we used to have. But um, I think it is so interesting right now to hear how film festivals are going on in this pandemic, because I think there might have been a point this summer where I at least kind of thought, oh, my God, all of the fall festivals are never going to happen. What are we going to do? Um, and I'm curious for you guys, when did you start thinking we're going to pull it off this year? Like, how, at what point did you know that it was possible? Right. Well, Carol and I had been talking this really since March, coming up with idea after idea after idea. And um, really the drive-in stuck with us because we felt no matter what's happening, even if theaters had opened, this is, you know, obviously months ago, that people were going to be looking for a different experience. So we searched and searched, you know, we look, okay, we'll rent some equipment, but we had to do it right because of the kind of films we're playing. You had to have the right kind of projection equipment, the right kind of screens so that the uh, distributors and studios would want to play. And Carol's had a lot of interactions with them. And really this all came together a month ago when we found the right piece of property. We found amazing partners with Northwood Raven. The location's fantastic. And the projection equipment has just been delivered an hour ago. The screen is being built. It'll be up on Sunday and we're, we're a go. Yeah, I want to be clear that you guys built drive-ins for this. This isn't like, you know, this summer a lot of drive-in movie theaters that already existed were thriving. Like for Film Fest 919 this year, you built drive-ins in the town of Chapel Hill. Not only built, but we put together a film festival in one month. (laughs) I mean, how does that happen? I mean, that's actually a true testament to the impact that this festival has had with the industry in general. So I'm, I'm really thankful that the studios have, worked, have played with us and uh, we were able to pull it together. We still have five more days. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not just a drive-in. It's a drive-in that the, the land of property is 100,000 square feet. Wow. And we have, you know, a screen that starts 20 feet up in the, in the air and then is, you know, 27 from there and 50 feet wide. So, you know, it's not this little temporary blow-up screen. I mean, we went full on. 
I think the concept of a regional film festival is uh, familiar to a lot of listeners to this podcast. Like we hear from people who have their regional festivals all the time. And I've talked about Film Fest 919 for my end of it. But can you guys just kind of get into like how this landscape of festival season works for you guys? Like, Carol, when you're talking to studios like Amazon with One Night Miami, like what is it that brings them to tiny little Chapel Hill and says, we want to bring our big award season movie to your drive-in film festival? It's kind of a combination. I mean, we've worked with these people for so many years, so we have relationships built in already. So that helps considerably, and that actually gets them to answer our emails uh, or phone calls. (laughs) But beyond that, what's important with them is getting everybody's opinions that they can. But in this region in particular, there are a good number of Academy voters, Mm -hmm. and that's that's key for them. You know, they're they're trying to position these films as much as possible for the wacky award season. That (laughs) that stay tuned on how that works. What was challenging this year is that. A lot of films that you would have expected to be in the race have been pushed to next year. Yeah. So what that does, though, is open the door for some really, you know, wonderful gems. Yeah. And you guys would you know, normally be at the Telluride Film Festival or Toronto mm-hmm. or, you know, yeah. looking at what's at Cannes, kind of looking at what's out there. And the Toronto lineup was really small this year. Telluride got canceled. So what did you do to find the movies that you wanted to have this year? So what we did is we've been really studying the lineup from, I think we started oh, back months. in March, April, <laughs> and, and reading every little thing that came through or Googling or reading. And, and put, that's how we put this lineup together is just by following and following. And it, it was like, oh, another one not making it. And, but a lot of our originals are playing and did stay from that were first on our list, mm, yeah. which is very exciting. And you know, Carol's just been, you know, instrumental and then making it happen. I mean, she did make it happen. Um, I mentioned One Night Miami, which is the opening night film, along with MLK FBI. Uh, One Night Miami was at Toronto. MLK FBI, I think, was at Toronto as well as New York Film Festival. Um, there's a there's a really great mix of titles again. So what else are you guys just excited to have in the lineup? There's, there's two films. One's called Fat Man. And, you know, one of the reasons that Carol and I have always been so loyal to film festivals and think they're so important is watching the evolution of a filmmaker and the the director and writers of these films the nelms brothers we met them oh what 20 years ago when they had this little short in the festival and we fostered them all these years and watched their careers change and now to be playing the world premiere of this very commercial film with you know talent and everything in it is really special and on top of that there is a film called Good Samaritan, which it stars and was written by a UNC, former UNC football player named Jake Lawler. Mm. So we're putting these together um, at one of the screenings because it shows like a new filmmaker and being part of his journey as we've been part of the Nelms Brothers journey. One of my favorite films is Uncle Frank. I don't know if you've seen that one yet. With, I have not um, seen that one yet. With Paul Bettany. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And, and it, it takes place at a wedding where he comes home from New York and lives, you know, communes with his family, which are in a whole different world than he's in. And slowly but surely, you know, the dyna- family dynamics start to come out and they have to reconcile with each other. So it's a fascinating story and beautifully told. And Paul Bettany is definitely one to look at for that movie. We have a nice variety. I mean, we have Lupin Three, the first, a, a, a manga animated film. 
there's a huge following for manga, as you know, anyway. And to be able to get this film, it's a U.S. premiere, which we're excited about. Actually, for the first time, we have a U.S. premiere and two world premieres, which is exciting. That's great. Yeah. yeah. yeah as we're talking, you know, the in-person part of this festival hasn't kicked off yet, but you guys are making all these plans for having these drive-in events and, you know, people can pay for their pods. And, you know, we've watched all summer have people as people have kind of reinvented movie going. So what is it? What steps do you take to make it so that you're having an event, which is something we don't have much in our lives these days, but to, to make it safe, to make it legal and uh, make everyone feel OK going to it? Right. Well, we have worked with the city of Chapel Hill. And there are guidelines and we're going to be very strict with them. Like at the drive-in, you know, we're going to have it arranged that even where there are going to be food trucks, the food's going to be brought to you. And we're going to have volunteers out there to make sure that you keep your masks on. The cars are socially distanced because we want people to be able to come out and enjoy film, you know, and, and enjoy themselves. And the same with the pods. The pods are socially distanced. I went and tried it myself to make sure I was comfortable before we committed to this. And as we've talked about, I don't go out. I, you know, I haven't really been doing anything. And it's, it's a comfortable situation. It's a nine by nine pod and only five people can go in it. So you're in situations and where the crowds are not overwhelming, especially in the outside crowd pod situation, that you feel like you're in your own space. And, and the same with the driving. You're in your car. You know, we're, we want people to stay in their car which even the cars, like I said, are socially distanced. And there's sanitation stations all over. There's reminders to keep your, your masks on because um, we want to keep this going after the mm-hmm. festival, the drive-in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only thing we're really missing out on and, and, and we're encouraging people to go on social media to do this is, is you know the chatter about the films when you're waiting in line. I mean, I really mm-hmm. miss that part and coming out of the theater afterwards and, t- and talking about, you know, whatever, you know, however they feel about the movie, that's going to be the one glaring omission this year. But we're hoping that people will engage on social media because of it, you know, because I think it's important. You know, we, we are showing these films early to a community that wouldn't ordinarily get them. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no no guarantee that they'll actually get them theatrically either, especially, you know, right now. So we're thrilled to be able to present these movies. Yeah, I mean, you guys are experts not only in film festivals, but in uh, movie theaters and movie mm-hmm. going in yeah. general. And it's right. been a really rough year for it. And it's not really not showing a sign of getting better. Like in North Carolina, movie theaters are just now able to reopen. And, and you know, the time will tell how well that works out. But like what... Does anything bring you optimism about the future of movie going and like when we might be able to have those experiences you're talking about, Carol, about like communally experiencing that? You know what? Theaters will survive. They <laughs> they may not. They, they're they're going to struggle. But when this is when this blows over, people will go to movies. People long for movies. It's comforting. It's an opportunity to step out of your reality. So I don't think they're going to go away by any means. It'll take a while to recover, though. Yeah, and if, if I can add to that, you know, I grew up in a, in a movie theater family. My grandfather owned movie theaters. And the last thing he said to my mother before he passed away, the Betamax had just come out. And he's like, what's going to happen to my movie theaters? And every time theaters go through a situation, it's like, oh, this one's claiming bankruptcy. This one is. That's it for theaters. I think the strong and the creative will survive. Because it's that at-home experience, and to me, that's the only place I can watch a movie is in the theatrical experience. You know, whether it be a drive-in, the pod, or at the actual theater, um, when I'm ready to go back to a theater. Because I can't watch a movie at home. That's where you're supposed to see the movie, and that's what the filmmaker intended for their film. 
I wanted to ask if there's anything from all this reinvention you guys have had to do where you've said, you know what, let's keep it this way. Like every so much has been reinvented for COVID and we can't wait to go back to normal. But has has anything emerged from this that, that feels like a good way forward? I mean, I think so. We're definitely going to be utilizing the drive-in. I love the fact that they're coming back mm-hmm. <laughs> out of necessity, granted, but they never should have gotten rid of them in the first place because it's a great familial experience. But we we definitely want to still keep the indoor theater, too, because it's, you know, we just want something for everybody. And not everybody can afford a, a ticket for the drive-in, for instance, even though it's really cost-effective if you have four or five people in your car. But um, we just want to be able to make it easy for everybody. Yeah. And I think one thing, you know, obviously there has been a lot of challenges through this, um, is Carol and I kept thinking and pivoting and how can we be creative and how do we keep this going the right way that it matches what we envisioned when we did this. And, and it changed constantly, but we kept on that same path, a live event that people are going to really have a good time at and a great experiencing and the, you know, the quality of the movie viewing, the presentation being, you know, paramount. Yeah. Is there anything else you guys want people to know? Because this is going to be uh, airing as the film festival is well underway. So if you're in the Triangle area, anything else you want everybody to know about? Come see the movies. They're all worth seeing. They're wonderful movies. Everything uh, presents a different look at the world. And so we just encourage people to, you know, get out of the house (laughs) and do so safely. (laughs) What a concept. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, and come support it. Come support what we're doing and bringing now with the drive-in, we can bring things to the community year-round. Yeah. Yeah. Other than on snow days. (laughs) If you want film festivals and movies to exist when this is all over, uh, now's the time to support, it seems like. Right. You need to support our theaters and support our artists. Yeah. That does it for this week's show. I feel like we should say in advance, we're going to do another book club next week and talk about Rebecca, which is both the Daphne du Maurier novel, a Hitchcock movie, and soon to be a Netflix movie. Uh, so we're going to be talking about both the new movie and the book next week. So if you want to read along with us uh, or go rewatch the Hitchcock movie, please do and catch up. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can read Richard's review of The Trial of the Chicago 7. You can subscribe to Still Watching and hear about The Haunting of Blythe Manor and We Are What We Are. And you can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best new Oscar category for 2021 goes to Joanna Robinson. A truly extraordinary wig. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.